Psalms 101. 101 and verse 2, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. That's our text, the Christian home. If you can walk in your house with a perfect heart, man, woman, boy, or girl, you have a tremendous testimony. You have a tremendous testimony if you can walk in your house blameless. If the people who know you better than anybody else, that would be the members of your family, your children or your husband, your wife, or your parents. If they can say about you, he or she or they walk blamelessly in our home. What they hear at church, they live. And the things that they're supposed to be doing at home, they do. And the example they're supposed to set, they set. I know my child got saved because they're not like they used to be. Their life has changed. Things have turned around. They read, they study, they're more cooperative, more like I wanted my children to be. God does a good work in you when he saves you. But that work has to go home with you, and that's where you prove it. So we're studying the Christian home because that's what God wants. Homes full of godliness. Godly homes, spiritual homes. Homes in which Christ is Lord and Master. The one whom everybody is submitted to and surrenders to and honors and obeys, the Lord. I know those are words that are spoken often in Christian circles. They usually don't have a lot of meaning. We're used to hearing them. But you think about it. A godly home is godly people. Godly people are God-inspired people. They're God-inspired because they have availed themselves to his word. They listen to it. They pay attention to it. They make application of it. God honors that and begins to bring a godly life and a testimony to that person. The best place to prove you're the real deal is at home because what you are at home, you have brought here tonight. Now, we've been looking at Adam and Eve and marriage and the beginning of, of all of this, and God brought a man into this world. Then he took from the man a part of his body and made a woman out of it, and he gave her back to the man because he has that need. He said, I will make a helper suitable for him, a helpmate, somebody who can fit in with his plans, not somebody that will stand over him because he didn't take a bone out of his head, not somebody he can stand on because he didn't take a bone out of his feet, but somebody who can stand beside him, somebody that he can depend on, somebody that he can count on, somebody that prays for him, upholds him, encourages him, enables him with whatever resources they have to be the kind of man he's supposed to be. He likewise reciprocates to that by realizing that as a man, he's got a job to do, to love his wife, to treat her like Christ treats the church. That's a tall order, but it can be done. It must be done because that's what the Bible says. Let's begin the night with the roles in the home. We'll start with the man and husbands and fathers because the Bible has much to say in it about a man and his responsibility, his role at home. Let's begin with Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Most people who study much in Scripture know Deuteronomy 24 is the chapter that begins talking about divorce. You know, when a man takes a wife and this and that, and he doesn't like her, and he runs her off, so forth. 
Jesus said, Moses said all of that because of the hardness of people's hearts. Now, verse five, all you young folks, you listen because this will apply to you more than some of the rest of us. When a man hath taken a new wife, it doesn't mean one at a time and every when you get old and you get new ones and you get rid of that one and get you some more new ones. But he said, when a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he had taken. How about that? No war, no bills, no responsibilities, no debt you have to deal with, because for one year, you are free to cheer up your wife whom you have taken at home. Now, it's interesting that the law of Moses makes this provision. And in this way, God is showing us how important in the economy of Israel and the way the nation runs and operates, it's really important that the home be the strong individual parts of the nation. God wanted it to be like that. So in the law, he says, when a man takes a new wife, and that happens to a lot of us, you know, when you marry, not one or two, but when you marry, he said, you're free at home for one year to cheer up your wife. Now, that's his responsibility. That's what a man in the Bible was required to do. I don't know if it's because he married a poor girl that wasn't sure what she was marrying, because often parents arrange for marriages and Dad go out and find his son a wife or go out and find his daughter a husband, however that was done. And maybe when she saw what she was getting, she might have thought, oh, man, this tough here. Maybe that's why the New Testament teaches that the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands. Maybe some of them are hard to love. I mean, love like I'm fully committed to you. I'm in this whole thing for the rest of my life for your good. This is what God wants. This is what I want to do. You don't find very much of that anywhere anymore, ever. But maybe she was so upset with what she got that he had a real job ahead of him making this girl happy. See, the word cheer up means to gladden, to make bright, to make someone happy. You don't just get married and you're just happy forever, ever after. It's the man's responsibility. Notice he didn't say when a woman has taken a new husband. He said but when a man has taken a new wife. His testimony to the public and his testimony in the church. I heard a man say this years ago. He said, let me see your wife. I'll tell you how you're doing. Of course, I'm thinking any woman can play a role for a while. But the point was... I'm going to find out what kind of man you are by looking at your wife and because she becomes sort of a project. You're married to somebody that God holds you responsible for making glad and happy. Now, when I got married, I didn't know this in the Bible, but I had to do this. <laughs> so I had a ukulele. Well, see, my wife came out of a pristine home. Everything was just right in the house that I rented for us to live in up in Piketon, Ohio, a dreadful place, <laughs> but up in Piketon, Ohio, and I took her over there after, you know, we moved up there and took her in, and she wanted to clean all the cabinets and found a roach. 
those things. And she just cried. This place is nasty. I thought, just do that. Ain't no problem. And I had to get the uke out, and I had to act around and act. You know, I'd sing and dance. <laughs> I did. I never know if I've told much of that before, but I would laugh. I'd make fun and cross my eyes and make funny faces, and she started laughing. That was I'm getting tired. Forty years of this has been a long time, you know. <laughs> been longer than 40 years. I don't know how long I've been married for a long time. But, but anyway, I think there's a lot of ways that a young man, when a man's going to get married, you got to think of this. When you're marrying a girl, you're asking her to leave the only home she's ever known where so much was done for her. She was for much of her life, the focal point of the home, or at least for a time when she was young. And she's learned a routine that's in her system. That's the way she thinks. She does it the way she was raised. And I guarantee you, when she gets married and things have to change, it's not easy to change. And she might find you're not very good at putting the cap back on the toothpaste, or you leave the toilet seat up and, you know, dreadful things, bad things. <laughs> you don't carry your dish back to the sink. I'm thinking things I never did or something like that. Well, she never grew up like that. And your wife might really have a problem. You think, why would she have a problem? That's the way she was raised. You married her and you all have been given one year to get this cleaving, meshing together, becoming one together, you got a year to do that. Nobody's allowed to interfere with this. It's important to God. You see, the testimony of your home has to be one of joyfulness and happiness. The atmosphere of your home should be one where Jesus Christ has made you glad. It should be like that. Somebody shouldn't come into your house and sense the tension and the uncertainty and be afraid to say certain things because of the fear of what will happen if you say this or do that. Or a woman should not walk around her house feeling intimidated by her husband or afraid of what he might say. That's not a happy home. That's not even a good marriage. One of the purposes of courtship in the Bible, I think, was to familiarize yourself with who you're going to have as your wife. When you were betrothed to somebody in the Bible, you were about like being married because if you didn't want to marry the person after you committed yourself to marry them, as you hadn't married yet, then uh, you had to write her a bill of divorcement. Joseph was going to do that with Mary, you know, and he was going to write her a bill of divorcement even though they were only betrothed, but it was a commitment. And this commitment was for a certain amount of time in which you would I guess get to know her or him talking and whatever. So many people today are not used to doing this. People have set parents aside and what daddy thinks, set mom aside. Kids haven't been restrained. They get to go out and when they want to go out with who they want to go out with, come in whenever they want to. There's something really wrong with all that because when you marry that kind of mentality, you got that to deal with because if they don't keep getting their way in their marriage, she gets hateful and ugly and odious, or he does. Half the Christian marriages wind up in divorce. I would say to all you young men, do not marry. Just don't marry. How's that? And all you girls, don't let boys marry you. Just don't marry. All you agree, say I. I know what you're saying, but the point is, it's a very serious affair. It was to God. Again, 
When you get married, you're not going to war. In chapter 20, even with the espousal or being engaged, verse 7, For what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return to his home, lest he die in battle and another man take her. Because that man who goes out into battle with the love of a woman on his heart, his mind is distracted from the battle. Wouldn't you agree? And he said, don't let him go out there and die in battle and then all this fall apart. Let him go home. Let him go get married. I tell you, when I was in Israel, I found out this. Not only did people work at marriages, but it seemed like the husband was around the wife, especially every evening. They were together a lot. They all had children. I think they're trying to have as many as they can, which is fine. God didn't restrict that either. I mean, he never said, don't have lots of children. He just said, replenish the earth. And they got a lot of earth to replenish over there. Nothing wrong with that. And it's nobody else's business except the two that are marrying. You're welcome. But a man has to do that. He has to realize that it, it is up to him in the home to initiate happiness and gladness. Now, if his wife thinks she knows more than him because she's got a TV mentality where, you know, men are dumb and ignorant and mess up and are goofy and they can't do anything without this wise, sophisticated, educated, proper woman, then she never views him as what he should be, the head of his house. Therefore, his house is never in order. Therefore, it is not a haven of rest nor a place where Jesus is Lord. If a man cannot be the head of his house, it's usually because either he doesn't want to, he tries to marry his mother who ran the house when he was growing up, or else he marries somebody who just won't let him be the head of his house. And before you ever get into the marriage situation, you better make real sure that who you're marrying is willing to be what they're supposed to be. And you talk about these things. And you speak the truth. You don't hide stuff. You speak the truth. You get it out. You speak the truth in love. There's nothing wrong with being honest and upfront and get it out. Amen. But another thing here is that God wants a home to have a good beginning. He doesn't want you to try to make it work as much as give you a year to really get it going good. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Talking about as Christ loved the church, wives submit yourselves to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. In that section of the scripture, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives, it says. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh... But what does he do with it? He nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now, has the Lord been tender and careful towards us? Even though we have messed up more than we ever should, God has never forsaken us. I think we are probably reminded more often than we're willing to admit that we're not blessed because we have deserved it or because we've always done right. But God is long-suffering towards us, full of mercy and kindness, is willing to forgive us when we repent and restore us to his good favor. Because that's the way he is. Well, that's the same way a man should be in his home towards his wife. Because while she has not married a perfect man, he has not married a perfect woman either. And all these things have to come to the surface because if your differences don't come to the surface, you'll never deal with it. If you're afraid to talk about it, then you can't have the kind of marriage you should. You have to get it out. 
You have to speak the words. If there's a problem that really bothers you, you talk. If there's a problem that's really upsetting you and you're dreading it, then you talk. Because if you don't talk, you allow the thing to go on. It begins to see the root of bitterness takes place, and then you're not happy in your marriage. That's not the way God wants it. That doesn't honor God for us to live that way. He wants us to be cheerful. So you nourish and cherish your wife. It's like saying you really, really care for her. And it's more than just a duty that you have. How many of you know that Jesus doesn't love us because, well, I'm supposed to? He loves you because he wants to. You are to him the apple of his eye. You are to him the rose of Sharon. You are to him a glorious and wonderful church. I mean, he sees us like that, and he's working to bring us to that. But that's the way it works. And back to Deuteronomy, again, you don't have to go back there unless you want to. But happily married people form a strong unit in a home. When there's a home where people can laugh comfortably and freely, when nobody is afraid of how somebody else feels that they can't talk about it, that we're open and upfront with each other, we're not hiding stuff and afraid of what you'll say if I say this. When you get all of that stuff out of the way, and I know they use the word transparency a lot today, meaning I'm going to be open with you. If you love your wife, if you love your husband, you will be open. I don't care what your faults are, your mistakes are, your problems are, you talk about it. One of the man's responsibilities is to pray for you. You may not respect a whole lot of his spirituality, but God, because he's the head and because God made him the head and gave him the responsibility to rule over his wife and for her to submit to him, he puts a lot of stock in his prayer. It was the elders of the church that God called to pray for those who are sick, not the elders' wives. And elders are masculine and gender, trust me with that. And so I think God gives certain kind of grace to men, to men who not only see their duties and responsibilities, but want it to be in their life like it is here, and pray that I'll marry a woman who will have like-mindedness so that she will fit in with this also. Because a lot of women today won't do it. I can't tell you to get ahead of myself. I can't tell you how corrupted and how perverted a lot of women's thinking, maybe men, but more women, because of this submission thing. And you got women's right and now and all of these women's groups that are vocal and in your face and everything but meek and quiet. Everything but that. It sounds today when you tell women that, you know, for your husband to be the head of your family and for your house to be in divine order, you must submit to him and honor him as that so that he can function like that. Well, that's good for you too. God will bless you. If you don't do that, your house won't be blessed. You'll exist. You'll be a house, not a home. The days of heaven on earth will not be in your house. It'll just be in the Bible that's on the table in your house. But these are things that God wants to be real to us. A happy home, a couple that's happy with each other, likes to be with each other. A man who likes to come home. Spending time with his wife and enjoying her presence. You don't have to be in bed all the time. You can just enjoy going places together, laughing about things together, just enjoying small talk together. It's that meshing and coming together of a man and his wife and God so blending them together that it becomes easy to pray together. It becomes easy to talk about scripture together. It's easy to read the Bible in the presence of each other and, and talk to other people about the Lord in the presence of each other. 
I think the church is full of men who would feel very awkward if they had to spend time praying with their family because they've never done it. They never felt comfortable doing it. I know a lot of women would love for that to happen, but they can play a role in it too. We'll wait till we get to that for them. But 1 Corinthians 11, here's God's divine order in the New Testament. We'll begin with 1 Corinthians 11. Divine order. That is the way God wants it. People being the way God wants them to be. Men being Bible men, women being Bible women, children being Bible children. And it all begins with the man. Now, if I tell you that a lot of people don't like 1 Corinthians 11 today, trust me with that. They don't, really don't like this chapter very much at all, at least the first part of it. Verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, maybe some people, and I've read this in commentaries, that people think that Paul had a problem with women. That he just didn't like women, and he just kind of had a problem with women. And you got to learn to say this to people who say that. While it was the hand of Paul that wrote this, this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not Paul's word at all. It's God's word. It doesn't matter what Paul thought about anybody when he moved his hand across those pages there and he was writing as the Spirit of God gave him utterance. It's what the Word of God says. And so when God says these things tonight, don't blame somebody else. It's what God says. So he said the head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And this is the way it works. Then he talks about that awful subject called the head covering. I say awful because a lot of people just, well, it's here, but I won't talk about it tonight except to mention it because he says in verse 4 and 5, every man praying with his head covered dishonors his head. A woman who prays without her head covered dishonors her head. And down in verse 6, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn, let her be covered. In other words, shaved or shorn would be bald-headed. A woman's hair was given to her. For her glory, it, a long hair identifies a woman as being a female. And this is part of what gives in to her beauty and, and her femininity. But there's more to this than just hair, because he's not talking about hair here as much as he is a sign, a symbol. Because if it was wrong to pray with your head covered and hair is a covering, then all men would have to shave their heads, most all of us. You're welcome. <laughs> because we shouldn't pray with hair on our heads. But that's not what he's talking about here. The whole point of this is verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man, because she came from him. She is the most magnificent thing that's ever come from a man. It's a woman. Now, verse 8 and 9. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Who was first? He was. Thank you. In verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman. Let me ask you all this question now. Why was a woman created in the first place? What was in the mind of God when he created her? Why did God create a woman? For the man, didn't he? 
Let me read it again, verse 9. Don't be afraid to read that. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And for this very reason, this is why, verse 10, he says, for this cause ought a woman to have authority or power or a sign of authority on her head because of the angels, which are present in this room tonight. It's her saying, I recognize that Adam was first and I was made from him. And I recognize that God holds him to be the head, but he can't be if I don't honor him as the head and submit to his headship in the home. So in recognition, in public, is a testimony to whoever that I am in submission and I do honor him and I do recognize the Bible roles and, of divine order. I'm going to put this thing on my head. This is a sign, a symbol. Actually, it had to do with a kind of a more like of a shawl, but a sign is a sign, whether it's a potholder or whatever you want to do, or a hat. I'm just saying that's what it says in verse 10. I didn't write it. God did, but that's what he said in verse 10. That's the text. It's headship. Look in Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. For the woman which hath a husband is by the law bound to her husband as long as he lives. Does that mean she's permanently married? Shh. Hello? She is as long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, she is loose from her husband. And there's more in there about that. You can go on down through there about that. But here's the point. A man who is ahead of his wife... A woman who is under her husband, two married people, are bound by the law as well as, as by God's ordinance to each other. They are to become, while they're two different people, they are to become one. The Hebrew word for one is a unified one. It's like, take now thy son, thine only son. That's a distinctive one, but then there's two who become one. That's a unified one. These two come together. They sort out their ideas, opinions. They begin to set aside divisive things and things that are unnecessary in their marriage. And they begin to mesh together. They begin to be the kind of one person that they ought to be. Now, when children come into that family, they don't run to mom if they don't like dad's decision or they don't run to dad if they don't like mom's decision because they become one. You get one good parent out of this. Two people, but one idea, one philosophy, one way one manner of life that they have come to study and pray and seek and God shows them this, put things together like that, and this is what you get in a home of that sort. Now, it's a man's job to do this because it says he is the head of his house. In verse 8, it says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, that shouldn't be a put down or you shouldn't have to take that wrong. But I believe a lot of Christian people would. You mean to tell me, and I'm thinking, it is not my opinion. I didn't write it. But it does say that a woman's reason, the reason a woman was made, created, is in existence is for a man. It is not to run corporations. It's not to be big time anything. It's not to... Do your own thing out there and, and become famous. That's not what he created any woman to do. That's not her role in this life. That's not what the purpose he was for. 
even though maybe AT&T, what, half of the ownership of that is run by women today? I had some statistics on the amount of control in politics and in business that women have in America because you get that kind of mentality and this self-madeness and you become judges and school teachers and college presidents and senators and representatives and you become somebody big and men have to submit to you. All of this biblical stuff gets all whacked up because even if some sophisticated, highly advanced woman was sitting like in here tonight and you told her that your role in this life is not to be somebody that runs a country, your role is to fit in with your husband's plans if you're married, then you would get this probably slamming of the door. There's just a lot of ingrained rebellion and indifference to God in our country. People will assemble in any Christian church to listen to anything as long as it doesn't offend their way of life. That's why you get these huge big churches by never talking about difficult things. You get all these people coming, make them all happy, make them comfortable, they'll continue to come. If you start dealing with specifics, that's why we get in trouble. That's why I do, because you deal with specifics. If we'd quit explaining what we mean, we'd be all right. But if we just say, you know, I believe Jesus is Lord. Well, I do too. Well, what do you mean by lordship? Well, then you start explaining what lordship means and everybody gets edgy. Well, nobody can live like that. That's crazy. That's wild. That's over my head. You think, well, isn't that what teaching is all about? God makes a statement. Doesn't he give us his spirit to teach what this means? Are we not to explain this is the way we're supposed to live, that the way we live is not up to us? What does he say in Proverbs 3, that he will lean not to his own understanding? Does not our understanding about life have to be challenged? Should we not be confronted as Worldly wise people who come to the Lord, should we not be challenged with the statements of God that says you can't do that and be mine? Is that wrong for us to say the truth? It's wrong to skirt around it and be afraid to say it and leave you like that. That's what's wrong with it. We get to the place where Christians will finally quit saying, well, I'll tell you what, I wasn't expecting to hear that night, but you know, I if I'm going to have to listen to that every week, I'm going somewhere else. All you have to ask is, is it the truth? Did you hear the truth? What does the Bible say? How many times have you heard this? Don't believe it because I say it, but believe it because the Word says it. And if the Word says it, we have now a basis for guilt and conviction. We have now a basis for either being right with God or wrong with God. But if we don't teach people, if we're afraid of your strong feelings, you women say, for example, if I was afraid to say things because I'm afraid I would offend you and I avoid saying what you need to hear, how could you ever get lined up with the Lord? All right, let's go back to the marriage. Men, how in the world can we deal with things that trouble our wives or things that trouble us if we can't talk, if we're afraid to talk about it? I could talk about a thousand things that married people talk about because I've talked to a thousand married people. There's nothing that can't be worked out. I don't care how long it's gone on. What it comes down to, are you willing to start somewhere to do what you're supposed to do so that you can be what God wants you to be? This is a very big deal with God. And if you're avoiding this and setting that aside and not dealing with that, but you're doing all these other things, it doesn't work. It doesn't count. You've got to do this.
This is part of it. First thing God did with mankind was to make them. After he made them, he put them together. After he put them together, they sinned. Then God began to judge them, put them out in the world. And he says, now this is what I want you to live. You want to stay on the grace side of God? Do this. And don't be so offended every time you hear wives submit to your husband as unto the Lord or to your own husband. Wives, 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 honor your husbands. Wives, don't be offended at that. Let me say it like this. This is why you were made. And a man doesn't need to come home and argue with a smart woman every night. He needs to come home to a loving soul who's looking forward to him coming home, and he needs to go home because I'm looking forward to going home. I just want to love you. I love you by looking at you. I love you by going places together. I love you sleeping with you. I love all the aspects. You're just a good, fun, kind person to be with. That's the kind of person I want to be with. So you work on that, and you start dealing with those kind of things, and you start bringing all those things out. But this is the way a man has to do it. Look at 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4. Well, this one would be good. If you want to be a leader in the church, well, here's one of the requirements. And everybody should aspire to being a leader. If we said verse 3, one not given to wine, you might as well write beer there too. Well, anyway, verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house. Does your Bible say ruleth? Now, I don't think the New Testament or God ever intended for the word rule in marriage to mean by force. If you rule by force, then you rule by fear. If you rule by fear, then you're an intimidating man and she's afraid of you and afraid to disagree with you because of you flying off the handle. That is not a Christian marriage. I don't care what church you go to. But he said, a man who rules over his wife, the word means to stand before. It's like being a superintendent of a Sunday school. I did that once. You're to oversee the materials. Everybody has them, that everything is in place, that all the teachers are there that day and that anything needs to be taken care of. You make sure you go around and do it, get the girl who does this and somebody does that, and it's your job to oversee. Well, that's what the word rule here means. When it says rule, it doesn't mean that a husband gets up in the morning and says, woman, kitchen. Now, I'm hungry, over easy. Uh, buddy, she did it too. How many know that's not ruling? That's intimidating. That's like being a slave owner roughing up somebody like that. That's not God. You won't find anything like that in the scripture, but I think a lot of people, when you say the word rule, they begin to think, well, he's talking about telling somebody what to do and being mean about it. No, it just means to stand before. It means to preside over. It means one who is a careful, attentive, watch over his home. And he does that well. How do you know he does it well? Look at his family. What's the rest of that say? He said, having his children in submission with all gravity. You cannot make your children spiritual. But you can live in such a way that your children respect you. Not only do they respect your convictions and your stands, they might also respect the fact that if they don't mind, you will spank them. Like you all, I love my mother. 
My mother loved me, but there were times I was scared of her. There was times I didn't want her to find me, and she could. And there was a time she couldn't. When I was told to do something and I didn't do it, or I answered her with less than, as I got older, with less than a respectful answer, because I'd have to do this sometimes, because she'd start swinging her old bony arm at me. And I was afraid of the consequences of not doing right. See, there is such a thing as a healthy fear. It's a man who knows to do good and is unwilling to do it. He should be afraid because God's going to judge him because of his willful disobedience to God. We may be struggling with something. We don't want to really disobey God. We don't know how to do this. I'm not sure how to incorporate this and how to get this started. And I'm really wrestling with a lot of things. And, man, I, oh, I want it the way God wants it, but I just don't know how to do it. That's one thing. But somebody who just says, well, I ain't going to do that. Well, he ain't going to tell me what to do. He can go cook his own eggs. See, there's something wrong there. Not the fact that he, if your husband said, I want you to crawl around this table three times and bark like a dog. I know a case where that happened, and she did it. I don't know if I'd have done that. But she did it. In front of his drinking friends. I don't know if I'd done that. But I don't know what I would tell her to do in alternative to that, unless she'd crawl around like a dog and bit his leg when she went by one time or something. <laughs> but... Ruleth means to preside over, to stand before. And as far as your children, I think your children should respect every father. They should respect them. Anytime a child can sass his or her parents, can talk back, there's a problem in that home. There's a daddy problem to begin with. Because a child who can sass their parents, you got a problem. First of all, your chances of living old are not good. You're living all right, but it doesn't mean you're going to live a long time because the fifth commandment, the one in the very middle of the Ten Commandments, is honoring your parents. This is the only commandment that has a promise to go with it. That is, you'll live a long life. But if you're allowed to sass, disagree with, slam the door, disobey at home, it's a daddy problem. Something's wrong with daddy. Because this should have never been allowed to happen. Now, you bring that to church. Now, they may not sit in here and sass because they're only here for an hour. They don't, no big decisions are made by daddies while I'm talking. But when you go home, if you act like that, you just identified what kind of a heart and what kind of nature you got. You're not a Christian. Now, you can act like one. You go to a place and you think you are, but you don't act like that and be a Christian. And, Daddy, you're a renegade. Any man that would let his children talk back to his wife, they should be dealt with. I had that happen once. I don't want to go into all of that, but I just said, what did you say to your mother? What? Come here. And we went in the other room, and we had a, a meeting. And it didn't do it no more. It's just the idea that as a man of this house, I want you to know that my wife means more to me than you do. I married her, not you. She's your mother. She carried you and gave birth to you in this life. You're not going to grow up and talk back to her and sass her like that because if you do that, I promise you, your children will talk the same way to you and make your life miserable when you get married. And it shouldn't be. Everybody in this room, you can stop all that stuff right now. Amen. 
I'm not saying there's anything like that going on, but if there is, we can stop it right now by a decision, an act of our will. Lord, I'm not going to do that. Forgive me for this hateful, loathsome attitude that I have. I ask you to forgive me because I don't want that to happen. Remember, we rule by consent, by respect and honor. Not because of force and power, but men rule, wives submit because that's what God wants them to do. Children honor their parents, not because their parents are always right, but you honor them because they're your parents. If you don't agree with them, you talk to them. Well, you can't talk to my dad, then there's still something wrong with him. My mom just won't talk. Well, then there's something wrong with her. Talk to daddy. Get it out. Don't hide it anymore. Don't get on the phone and yak your head off to somebody else about your house. Deal with it. Somebody say amen. Deal with it. That's the problem now. People don't deal with it. I just would to God that all of us could come to a place where we're willing just to be honest with discretion, to be honest at all times with everybody, just to speak the truth in love. You shouldn't wear that. That's much too low. Well, who told you? Who's made you my judge? I'm your brother or I'm your sister. And that's cut too low. You got too much showing, too much shoved up. You're just not dressed very appropriate. Well, who made you my judge? The Bible says judge righteous judgment. John 4. What if we could talk like that? We're going to make people mad, but you know what? Nobody can ever blame you of saying it to hurt somebody. What you're saying is that what you're doing is not good. Or a man who, in public, and I've seen this much too often, a man who holler at their wives in public, as a fellow I grew up with a long time ago, used to embarrass me. He just fussed at her. He just talked to her like she was his kid. I used to bow my head and he'd think, man, you shouldn't talk like that. This guy had a, a short fuse and he carried his lighter with him all the time. <laughs> Boom! I mean, oh, he's just a temperamental person. The kind of person that Proverbs says you should avoid. You shouldn't run around with angry people, especially when you talk to them about their angry countenance and how much damage this is doing. I remember once we were voting for deacons in our church, Charlestown, Indiana, Christian church. We're voting for deacons. And I, I like to study, and I'd read this, said that certain qualifications go with the office. It used to be a political thing. We voted our uncles and aunts and cousins and good buddies in. You know, they get to be a deacon or get to be an elder or a trustee, and it was a, it was a buddy thing. And this guy's name came up. Yeah, okay, all in favor, say aye. All opposed, yay. Say, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want... You don't want him to be, I said, I just don't think he's qualified. Well, why is that? I said, because of his anger, his temper. He can't control himself. Sometimes he takes off out of church on a good day and just scratches off and burns rubber halfway down the street because he likes the smell of rubber burning off his back tires. That is the truth. And at the softball game, about got in a fight one night because of this, and then tag a guy out and he shake a ball in his face. What about that? You know, and then irritate everybody. I thought, you know, none of that's Christian, I said. Well, we got to have unanimous approval over it. I said, I'm sorry, I just can't vote for him. Now, he heard about it. He didn't talk to me for a couple of weeks. Was I wrong? Who was wrong? He was wrong. What I'm saying is we never deal with stuff because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We would rather let people be obnoxious than be clean. It happens in the home first. 
She wants to get him. She wants to talk to him about this. But she knows if he does, she, he won't talk to her for at least a month. Or he'll believe her, go get drunk, or whatever people do, men do today. So she can't talk to him. He wants to talk to her, but said, man, if I say this to her, she's going to pout like a puff at her. She's going to swell up. You ever seen a snake called a puff at her, how they swell up? So men have this job of entering into a marriage with a woman that you're responsible not only to make this woman happy, but to oversee the well-being of your home and her attitudes, because you've got to cheer that lady up. Well, you might just sit down and talk to her, maybe take her somewhere, ask her what the problem is. Can we talk about it? Let's talk about it. Let's don't say, can we? Let's just talk about it. Let's get it out. Come on. Let's get it all out. Well, there's things about you that I just don't like. Tell me. And so she says a couple things. I go, ooh, ooh. Mm. I'm not giving up going hunting, woman. You can forget that. She wouldn't say that. All she said was, there's only four hours of daylight when you come home and you spend them all out there in that room and you never come in and talk to me anymore. Well, then he should come in and talk to her, shouldn't he? He can't sit out there and love his gun all day long. He's got to go in there and love his wife. Part of his role is to make her happy. She's not happy. She doesn't come to church with a smiling face. She's just not happy. A preacher that I know back at home who got saved when he was a young man, he was a drunk and all of that stuff, and he got saved and had quite a testimony. Still going today, he's about 85 years old. Last time I was in a meeting where he was and his wife was there, that was the saddest looking woman I ever saw. He'd be up there preaching about this and be, oh, he'd be, and I'd look over at her because I tend to do that. Where's his wife? Oh, there she is. Like, you know, you're doing good in what you do, but you ain't like that really. You think that ever happens? Do you think that ever happens? It happens all the time. I think some of the most out-of-order homes in America are preacher's homes. I do. I look at some of the ones that I've met through the years, a sad wife, the disgruntled husband. They never talk. Nothing ever gets worked out. He just preaches and hopes there's enough money coming in to pay the bills for another month, and she just endures it all. That's not a happy marriage. That's not what God wants. Any girl in that kind of marriage, if I said stay single, they'd say, Amen! Because I'd be better off being alone than having to deal with this the rest of my life. Unhappy every day of my life. That's your husband's fault. Or else he shouldn't have married you. Or you shouldn't have consented to marry him. Or your daddy shouldn't have arranged it one. But it happens that way. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. Talk about a man that did it right and had the favor of God. Genesis 18. In verse 19, God said this about Abraham. Now, God has announced that Abraham is going to be unique amongst all men. Not only will I speak to him face to face, and I'll meet with him and talk to him like I did Moses. Abraham's called the friend of God. But he said he will be the father of an entire nation, and all the earth will be blessed because of Abraham, because God said, I'm going to begin here with Abraham. Now, concerning him, though, Read this. 
For I know him, verse 19, that he will command his children and his household after him. Would that include his wife? And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Now, is the next word that? T-H-A-T. Could it be understood like this then? For I know Abraham. I know that Abraham will do this. Abraham is in charge of his family. He oversees them well. They honor him. And he will give a command and they will all follow it. He will tell his children what is right and righteous. And they'll live that way because of the influence that Abraham has on his family and the willingness of his family to submit to Abraham and believe that this man is a genuine article. Now, they will do this, and this must be done. It must happen in his home in order that. See the word that? In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now, what does the word that mean then? Does that mean that in order for God to bring upon Abraham all that he has said, that Abraham must be in such charge of his home that his family honors him and there's divine order there? That had to be. God makes all these promises. He said, I will bring all this on Abraham because Abraham will command his family. His house is right. His home is in order. His family is not out of order. They don't regret his decisions. He doesn't tell them to do things that would harm them or hurt them. They know he's honest and he's fair. Daddy is fair. And we trust him that what he's doing is the right thing to do. And we honor that. His whole house was in order. They stood with him and they stood behind him. And God said, I will bring on you, therefore, all these things that I have said about you. How about the book of Joshua, just over to your right, three or four books. Joshua chapter 24, the last chapter in Joshua. Verse 15, Joshua, at the end of his life, now they're in the promised land of Canaan. They've conquered, divided up the land. Now it's time for Joshua to get out of the way. But this is what he said. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, then you choose this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Notice the next part. But as for me and my house, what will we do? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How do you know that? Let me ask you all this. Think about this. How many men in the United States today in churches with a Christian name, how many men could say this? Me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. You don't even know who he is. Who is he? Who is the Lord? Well, his name is Jesus. Who's he? What did he do? Well, you know, everything the Bible said. What does it say in the Bible that he did? Well, you know, I just believe whatever the Bible says. No, you don't. You never heard it. You don't know what it says. And if somebody explained it to you, you'd be offended by it. This won't work for anybody. A natural man can't receive this. Y'all hear what I'm saying? How many men can say, my family will follow me and they will serve the Lord? Is it possible? It is possible. I've seen it happen. I've seen happy families where a woman 
loves a man where a man is in charge with happy, well-adjusted kids, not afraid to walk away from the world, who come to the Lord, stay with the Lord, and go to heaven when they die. Now, they're still alive, but they will go. Because that's how God honors his word in a home. And it begins with Papa. It begins with Daddy. Joshua said, y'all do what you're going to do. Serve the gods over here in the Amorites. You serve the gods in Egypt. I'm going to tell y'all something. As far as I'm concerned, me and my whole house, we're going to serve the Lord. Remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles? Let me show you what kind of home God poured his spirit out on the Gentiles in, in, in Acts 10. Would you look at Acts 10? This is what he did there. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. Now you know the story, don't you? A centurion of a band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with what? All of his house. Now the Bible puts that in there. These are pinned by the Holy Spirit to show you that not only was he a devout man in all the things that he did, but he had a devout home. And that what God did with this man will happen in his home. And whatever happens in this home, it'll happen because Cornelius was there. Notice verse 2. A devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. That's the kind of man God poured out his spirit on. His house was in order. What about Acts 16? Acts 16 and verse 30. Remember Paul and Silas had been in prison, started singing thy loving kindness, and they got out? Verse 30, and brought them out and said, sirs, this is what the jailer said, and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew he was in the presence of godly men and an act of God. When the jail's doors opened, the chains fell off, and these men came out. And they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that's the way God intended. When it comes to daddy, it comes to the rest of them. Because what he has gotten from God, he wants the rest of his family to have it. That's what Jehoshaphat did to the nation of Judah. He blessed Jehoshaphat. He said, I want the people blessed the same way. I want my people to have what I have. Paul said to him, he said, not only will you be saved, but so will your house. Verse 32, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all where? That were in his house. And he took them out the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and he was baptized and did all this straightway. And then when he brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with? Four times in those verses you got in his house. His H-I-S house. Would to God if we'd been in the Bible and they talked about us that he would have spoken well of us. Tom's house. Joe's house. Bill's house. Pete's house. Whoever's house. Would it have been nice for God to so recognize you that a magnificent amount of grace was able to be poured out upon you because you would be responsible enough to take such a wonderful gift to everybody else in your family until they got it. Save your whole house. Everybody got it. Now the alternative. 
the opposite of this, if we as men don't deal with problems in our home, let's go back to 1 Samuel. If we don't deal with things in our home, then this is what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 2, what a wonderful story. This is a really interesting book to read because it's history. It's really good. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Belial means the devil, the crooked one. And it tells about how they violated the law by taking that which was dedicated to God, and they were getting it out and eating it anyway. And verse 17, wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And I might say they still do today. Verse 27, and there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, thus saith the Lord God. Now Eli was a high priest, so he was a preacher of preachers. The man of God came to him and he said, did I not plainly appear into the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? I bless you with the very best you could have. That's what he said to the priest. He said, you didn't have to go out and work and slave all day to get this. You stand before me on the behalf of the people, and when you do, I bless the people, and the people bless you. That's the way it worked. Then verse 29, Then why kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that in your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, you see that? But now, the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You know why all this happened? because he did not restrain his sons and the sins that they committed and the things that they did. The women would come to the temple there to bring sacrifices and they were making passes at the women and doing things they shouldn't have done with the women. And Eli, who knew his sons were doing this, he didn't stop them. Well, what do you do? I mean, like I said, you can't make a kid spiritual. You cannot make a child forever. Mind you, there comes a day that their nature in their heart, if it hadn't been changed in your home, when they get grown up, they're going to live the way they live. You can't make somebody spiritual. You can point them to the spirit. You can nourish them and cherish them and you can teach them and all that. You can't make them. God only can do that. So what do you do if somebody like this is acting like this and they won't stop doing it? But you go to Deuteronomy 21, where it says, if you have a son that will not obey you, you take him to the elders of the gate and you stone him to death. Get this evil out of Israel. The whole nation would be better off without these boys. But they did die. And they died whenever the ark was captured by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, were killed in battle. And God said, your name dies with those boys. If your name was Hamilton, there'll never be another Hamilton of your seed. There'll be no more. Your seed dies. You're gone. No more Hamiltons. 
And on that very day that they died and the ark was captured, Eli fell off the gate and broke his neck. His daughter-in-law gave birth to a baby. They, they call him Echabod. The glorious departed. There's a black day in Israel. Listen to me. It all goes back to a malfunction in the home. It never got to be the way God wanted it. So many men marry because of selfish reasons. They marry for sex, and she's so cute and so pretty. But you know what? All of that pales. It dies real quick when emotionally you don't like the person you're in a home with because that part is no longer anything. If you take away the love, the commitment, and the care that goes with a Christian marriage, when you begin to eliminate that and you begin to act like a heathen in your marriage, you become very lusty, you become very selfish, self-centered, self-serving. It's all about what can you do for me. And when that begins to happen, you begin to be resentful because you don't love me because of who I am. You love me because of what you get. And I can't stand it because there's no feelings in this. It happens all the time. All the time. But it doesn't have to happen with you. Amen. Close your Bibles and stand to your feet. Let's pray. I want you to pray for yourself right now, just for you. This is, this is your moment to say, God, I want you to do a work in me in preparation in my life and my heart to be what you want me to be in order that I can contribute in the home that one day I will help prepare. I will contribute that which brings grace to my family. And Lord, if it's been a while since my wife and I have gotten along, pray that to you other men. If there's things that we really ought to talk about, there's some things we really ought to be talking about, Lord, we need to get some things fixed. I ask you, Lord, to make it possible, make me to be the kind of man I'm supposed to be that even now at this late hour I can start. Now, Lord, you've heard these prayers tonight. You've heard the cry and the, the thoughts of these hearts, men and women alike. And now, Lord, perform that which you have heard. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.